Amen. Amen. Church, how are we doing this morning? Y'all doing all right? All right. Y'all are doing good. Praise God. It's fun to be together, and uh, man, it's just good. Gathering here together corporately on Sundays and, and worshiping and being encouraged. Uh, I, hope, I hope you are refreshed uh, from your time here this morning. For those of you that I don't know yet, my name is Chris Pletcher. I have the privilege of being on staff here at Antioch. Uh, I'm actually our family's pastor, and uh, so I, yeah, that's right. We have families at this church, if you didn't know it. Uh, we have enough families at this church to pay me to work here at this church. Um, we have actually some incredible families at this church, and it is a great privilege and, uh, and honor for me to get to just uh, walk alongside and, and really just fight to see um, families and marriages and parenting and all that stuff that comes with it just healthy and and. We're just trying to make it look like the kingdom. That's the call, is to uh, get behind Jesus and uh, learn what his kingdom looks like and how his kingdom operates. So I love being a part of this church family. Um, I get to, I have the privilege of wrapping up our series called Passion and Purpose. So we've been doing this about six or seven week series on really what is the, what, what were the things that we see in the Bible that were just near and dear to Jesus' heart? What was he just most passionate and most dialed in on? We've covered a lot of different things from worship to prayer to forgiveness and faith. Um, and I have the privilege of wrapping it up today uh, with one last uh, theme that really kind of ties it all together. All right. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. I'm going to keep the cat in the bag for a few more seconds. All right. But I'm excited about what the Lord has for us. I want to tell you a little story um, as we start this morning. So when I was 16 years old, um, I was invited to a Young Life camp in the mountains of North Carolina. All right, I did not grow up around the church. I did not grow up in a, um, in a Christian home where I was taught to follow and obey and love God. But a lot of my friends were going to this Young Life camp, and I said, hey, let's go. This sounds fun. They said it, they promised it would be the best week of my life, all right? And so I was like, hey, sign me up. Let's go. So uh, I go to this Young Life camp, and guys, I have to tell you, it was probably the best week of my life up to that point. It was a blast, all right? You, you hear like camp food is usually like really bad. Well, Young Life actually wants high school students to know that God is extravagantly amazing. And so the food at Young Life camp is actually like better than probably what I eat at home. On a no offense, babe. I'm sorry. You're, you're an amazing cook. But hey, we actually met at Young Life camp, so she's cool with that, all right? So, so um, amazing. But in addition to having this incredible week, I heard the good news about Jesus for the first time in my life at age 16. Now, obviously, growing up in Texas, I had heard, you know, Jesus died on the cross. I, I had heard that. But I didn't know God. I didn't understand what Jesus was, was all about. And it was a powerfully profound uh, week for me where I heard for the first time that the creator of the world had actually created me and he created me to be in relationship with him, but that I, with the rest of mankind, I had turned my back on God and gone my own way and tried to find life outside of that relationship. And the result was that separation and sin and brokenness entered my life and entered the world, but that God was not content to leave that separation he was not content to leave a broken relationship, but he himself took on flesh and blood and walked the earth as a man named Jesus. And as crazy as the story 
sounded. We actually have historical proof that this man, Jesus, walked the earth and he healed people and he did miracles. And it was just extraordinary events that happened around his life. So much so that in the years after his life, a new, a revolution, a new faith was birthed on the planet as followers of Jesus filled the earth. Obviously, we know that Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and three days later rose from the grave all so that we could be reconnected to God. And this, guys, I know that you know, the gospel means good news, but at 16 years old, it was literally the best news I'd ever heard in my life, that God cared about me and could, actually could do something with my sin. Because I didn't need anybody to convince me of that part of the gospel, that I was a sinner. I, 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 I was clear on that point. But I wasn't always clear that there was any hope for me to be different. It changed my life. And as I left camp that week, they handed me a book called My First 30 Quiet Times. Who wants to guess how long my relationship with God lasted? 30 days. Changed my life for 30 days, guys. I did my first 30 quiet times, but the problem was I didn't have a church. I didn't have any Christian friends. I didn't have anything around me that would help my new faith keep going. So after the book ended and my junior year of high school started up again, I was just right back in with the same group of friends, playing football, doing the same things we always did. And within weeks, I was just right back in my old ways of sinful living. Actually, over the next two years, my life spiraled into more darkness and sin than before I believed in God. Like, what is up with this, you know? And I was so discouraged because I was like, man, I guess I'm just not good enough or not uh, strong enough to follow Jesus. I tried that, and it didn't work. So I come to A&M my freshman year, 2001, all right? God totally on the back burner of my life, and I decide, I decide what, what am I going to do in my college time? I'm going to join a fraternity, all right? True story, Kappa Alpha Order. I got any KA guys in the room? Yeah, probably not. All right, so, um, yeah. Hey, if you're in a fraternity, God bless you, man. Let's go hang out and get some coffee. But, you know, I, so I joined this fraternity, spiraling, spiraling, and, you know, God the whole time. Because once God comes in, guys, he just never stops calling or knocking, you know. So the whole time, he's just like, come on, let's go, you know. But I just didn't know how to actually follow Jesus. And so two nights after I joined this fraternity, I'm sitting in my dorm room, and I'm just like, it just empty in my sin and my brokenness and my shame and my guilt. And one more time, Jesus comes knocking on the door. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will let me in, I will come into him and dine with him. And I said, fine, Jesus, come in. I give up again. Just help me, God. And I hit my knees in my dorm room that night. Two nights after I pledged this fraternity, I said, God, I don't know, I don't know what to do or how to do it, but I need you in my life. And if you'll come and help me, I want to follow you. I know you are why I am alive. You are the reason for my living. And for the last 16 years, I've walked with Jesus. I never turned back. So who wants to guess what was the difference between what happened in my life at age 16 and what happened in my life my freshman year at age 19? What was the difference? You actually don't know because I haven't told you the rest of the story, okay? Three days after that night in my dorm room, God invited me to the first step of faith in my life, which was to drop out of this fraternity that I was in. The next day, 
Because how many of you guys know that God will often call you in faith to do something before you know what's on the other side of that act of faith, okay? I drop out of my fraternity. The next day, I meet the first three Christian friends I've ever had in my life. The next day. Tyler Hardy was one of them, okay? That, within two weeks, I think, we had gathered a small group of guys together, and we started a Sunday night kind of discipleship accountability group. And for my entire freshman year, every Sunday night, for like three hours, we would get together. There was six of us. And we would just, we'd get into the Word together. We'd confess sin. We'd pray for each other. We'd encourage one another every Sunday night for my entire freshman year. And it transformed the next 16 years of my life. So what was the difference between what happened in my life at age 16 and what happened in my life at age 19? One word, discipleship. Discipleship turned what could have been another moment of faith into a lifetime of faithfulness. Discipleship turned what could have been another powerful moment with God into a lifetime of following God. Have you ever had experiences in your life, powerful experience where you're like, oh man, I'll never be the same. And then like the next week or month, you're like, I'm still the same. (laughs) Have you ever been there? Guys, moments can be very powerful, but if they're not followed by discipleship, many powerful moments just fade into memories of what could have been. So as we wrap up this series, we have to let discipleship have the final word. Everything we've talked about so far, worship, prayer, service, justice, forgiveness, and faith, it will all just be passing interests to us if we don't anchor all of them in discipleship. It is the key to taking the faith of moments and turning them into faithfulness that lasts a lifetime. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. Let's get into the scriptures and see what Jesus has to say. So Matthew chapter 4, I want you to flip there, Matthew 4, 18. And we're going to see what the word of God has to say about discipleship. Where do we get this idea? We throw this word around all the time. Why is it so important? Why was it so important to Jesus? So as you're flipping to Matthew 4, I want to set the stage for you and what has just happened. Jesus has, around 30 years old, he has come out to be baptized by John the Baptist, a story many of you are familiar with. He's baptized by John the Baptist. There's a proclamation from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and we see the Holy Spirit descend on his life in the form of a dove. In Matthew 4, we're told that immediately after his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And it actually tells us why. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is kind of an asterisk this morning, but if you're in a wilderness, I want to encourage you that more likely than not, you've been led into the wilderness by God Because there's something that he is wanting to forge in your character in the wilderness that is necessary before you step into your fullness of your calling in your ministry. Jesus had to endure the crucible of the wilderness, which is a crucible of temptation, 
a crucible of temptation to see, would he use the things of this world to satisfy his needs, or would he use the word of God? But So he gets baptized. He emerges from the crucible, the testing of the wilderness, to begin his public ministry, passes the test, character proven, and he begins his ministry. And what was the first thing that he did? The first activity that he did in his public ministry. He called four fishermen to follow him. I mean, what, Jesus left heaven to walk on the earth and establish the kingdom of God. And the first thing he's going to do is go find some stinky fishermen and say, hey, come hang out with me. I mean, what's going on here? But we see it in verse 18. He says, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw these two brothers, Simon and Andrew. And he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. So I want us to look at four things real quick. Who did he call? What was the call? Why did he call them? And how did they respond? All right? We're going to look through this real quick. We're just getting a, some vision for Jesus calling his disciples to set us up for what does it look like for us now today, 2,000 year la- years later, to be disciples as well. So first of all, he called fishermen. He called ordinary men that had probably flunked out of synagogue, okay? In this Jewish culture, all young boys would go through various stages of schooling to see if they were smart enough to become rabbis. So if these guys are out fishing, it's probably because they flunked out and they weren't smart enough to be rabbis. But Jesus knew, hey, if you're going to be a fisherman, it's like 90% failure rate, right, on fishing. So you, that develops in you quite char- some character, right? A solid work ethic. If you can just keep on that fisher, fishing job, right, with a 90% failure rate. So he grabs these ordinary guys. What's the point? You don't have to be some genius scholar. You don't have to be the most smart, smartest, most educated guy in the room to step into the fullness of your calling by Jesus. You just have to obey him and get behind him when he says come. You don't have to be a genius. We don't need you to go to seminary to be a disciple. And so what was the call? He called ordinary men, and he said, follow me. I tried to dig into these words a little bit because follow me, it's it's like we, we, we say that a lot, and we've heard it so much, I think it's lost some power. And so but literally what it means is come, get behind me. So it's an invitation first, come, and it's an invitation to get behind me, to walk in my steps and learn how to live life from me. There was a common blessing in the days of Jesus that said, may you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. Isn't that cool? I mean, if you're going to be covered by somebody's dust, like you got to be right up behind them, right? You got to be right behind them. Wouldn't it be cool if we had more people that were okay being covered by the dust of their leaders? That was the invitation. Get behind me. Get behind me. To be called by a rabbi was an incredible honor. Because, see, in this culture, following somebody was actually a place of privilege. It was like an invitation to be invited into, like, an apprenticeship. And it was an honor. But we want to lead, right? Let's just be honest, church. We want to be leaders, I mean, you guys are at Texas A&M University, right? Why? Because it's, a, you know, the, the, the university where leaders go. You know, y'all don't want to follow anybody. You want to lead everybody. But the problem is, until you've got behind somebody else, 
and humbled yourself and followed for a little while, you just can't really be that great of a leader. The call was to get behind and to be covered by his dust. Why did he call them? To make them fishers of men. Check this out. To take their ordinary gifting and empower it for extraordinary results. To take their natural gifting and empower it for supernatural effects. Fishers of men. And how did they respond? They left everything. They left everything. Because remember, one It would have been an honor for these men to have been invited to follow. It was an honor. But discipleship is also always costly. It always demands that you leave something behind to follow him. What do you need to leave behind to get behind him, to be covered in his dust? Okay, so this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He calls these guys. Okay, now I want you to flip to Matthew chapter 28. I'm trying to give you some bookends here, the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the end of Jesus' ministry. And let's see, did the methodology change at all? Did he realize over the course of the next few years, hey, this disciple thing's not really working out. Let's try something different. What happens in between Matthew 4 And Matthew 28 is fascinating. And it would have been really confusing for the disciples. Let me tell you why. As they hung out with Jesus and got covered by his dust, they saw extraordinary miracles happen around them regularly. And Jesus revealed to them pretty early on, actually, that he was the promised Messiah, the one that was to come and establish the new Jewish kingdom. And so as they hung out with Jesus, there was an expectation brewing in him that, hey, he's about to overthrow the Roman Empire and set up shop, and we're going to get to rule and reign with Jesus because the new kingdom is here. The Messiah is here. So they would have been really, really confused when Jesus began to pass on his biggest opportunities to be crowned king. Okay, let me unpack it. Mark chapter 1 Okay, they stay up all night long and they heal an entire village. Everybody is sick. Every person in the village. This massive revival happens, right? And they wake up the next morning and where's Jesus? He left. Okay, if we had the kind of fruit that happened in Mark 1 with these guys, we would have pitched a tent, had a revival, hired some staff, planted a church, right? And we would have set up shop. Hey, let's ride this way. We got healings going on, right? Jesus left. And John chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people plus on the hill of a mountainside. They are ready to crown him king and overthrow the Romans. And he leaves. So the disciples are like starting to scratch their head going, what is wrong with Jesus? Doesn't he know how kingdoms work? You're supposed to overthrow the existing power, right? And then establish your rule and reign and, you know, kill the infidels, right? It's like... If we're we're trying to set up a kingdom, what's wrong with Jesus? He's missing all his opportunities to rise to political and spiritual power, right? Isn't that how you take control? But Jesus knew that earth's problems ran deep. And some quick fix solution of political power was not going to change the earth. 
Oh, but the quick fix is so tempting, isn't it, for us guys? Man, are you in debt? Hey, let's just win that lottery, you know? Boom, let's get out of debt. Come on, buy a few lottery tickets. Are you a little overweight? Hey, crash diet. You know, let's find the latest fad. Are you struggling spiritually right now? Hey, register for the Passion Conference or even World Mandate, right? Come on, quick fix. That's how we like it. But the problem with the quick fix approach to life is that it rarely leads to a lasting solution because it eliminates the step of us taking ownership for our situation. Are you with me? Jesus knew this, so he resisted the the allure to the quick rise to power and opted for a totally different, totally different kingdom agenda. Make disciples. Jesus left heaven to walk on the earth as God in the flesh, and he directed the vast majority of his efforts into 11 people. That should shock us into the way he's thinking about transforming the world compared to how we usually think about power and transforming. Oh, we can just get the right guy in office. You know, we're just holding out for the Messiah on Capitol Hill. I'm sorry, that's just not how the kingdom of God works, and it's never how the kingdom of God's gonna come. Discipleship. So in Matthew 28, 18, he's gone to the cross, he's surrendered his life, he's risen victorious over sin, and he's now commissioning his followers to carry on the mission. And what does he call, what does he call them to do? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am am with you always. Jesus' primary agenda and primary mission was to make disciples and teach them how to observe his commands. So I want to unpack this word observe real quick because it's going to be key, I think, for us moving forward and answering some of these questions. Okay, so what does this mean for us today? How do we practically disciple? What is involved? Well, this word observe, I've missed it for years. And I just, I think it's just sort of like, we think it means just, we just, okay, we're just supposed to observe, just kind of look at this stuff. Are we just supposed to learn more? You know, what does this mean to observe all that he commanded? Well, the The word actually means to guard, to keep, and to watch. Because this is actually pretty fascinating. There were discipleship groups before Jesus called his disciples. I mean, like having discipleship groups in this culture that Jesus lived in was pretty common. Think of the Greek philosophers of the day, right? So the Socrates or any of these guys, they would have like disciples that would hang around them and they would learn. But there's something fascinating that we can learn from this because there was this, this principle to these early disciple groups that wasn't just that we have a close relationship with our master. It was actually that we are devoting ourselves to his message. We are devoting ourselves to his cause. And so long before Jesus called his disciples, the culture understood to be a disciple meant two things. I have an intimate relationship with my master, I share life with him, and I am going to carry on his mission and message no matter what. So when he dies, guess who carries it on? The discipleship group. 
that was woven into their understanding of discipleship. They were committed to carrying on, to guard and to keep the teachings of their master. So I tried to boil it down for us and, and just kind of give us a, a, a definition of discipleship. This was just kind of what was resonating in my heart after trying to dig my, you know, dig my teeth into this in a new way is that a disciple, and I'll say it a couple times if you want to write it down, but a disciple is someone who has left everything to obey the call of Jesus on his or her life. Oh, hey, hey, way to go. Mary, she got it up on the screen. Come on. This right here. First service, I didn't have it up here. She nailed it. Thank you so much for serving. All right. A disciple is someone who has left everything to obey the call of Jesus on his or her life and who enter into a lifelong commitment of learning the ways of Jesus and passing them on to others. So as we spend the rest of our time here together this morning, I want to unpack for you four things that discipleship is not and combine them with statements of what discipleship is. And I really believe this is going to be a great day of clarity for us because I think in general we all really want to be disciples. I think we all want to live life of purpose and make disciples. I just think we don't always have a lot of clarity on what that looks like and how we do it. And so hopefully we'll have some clarity today, okay? So if you're taking notes, um, number one here is discipleship is not. Each one of these is going to have an is not and an is, all right? Discipleship is not optional. Discipleship is not optional for believers, and it is not optional for the church. We've kind of created this category that I can believe in Jesus and have faith and punch my ticket to heaven and put it in my back pocket, but not actually be a disciple and follow him. And I'm just telling you, that category did not exist in the Bible. We live in this culture, this over-religious culture in the South, where we have a ton of people that believe in God, but are not disciples of Jesus. And that did not exist in his time. To be called and believe and follow was to get behind Jesus, be covered in his dust, and it demanded your whole life. It's not optional. But it is his plan A. Discipleship is plan A for transforming individual lives and bringing the kingdom to earth. Jesus understood, if I can just transform your life and your little kingdom in you, if I can transform you, then everywhere you go becomes this pocket of transformation around you. That's what he was doing. I don't need some top-down political power thing. I just need to get inside of you and transform you and then send you all over the world, and I fill the earth with my glory as I fill you with my glory. It was plan A. Number two, discipleship is not someone else taking responsibility for my spiritual growth. Discipleship is not somebody else taking responsibility for my spiritual growth. It is an invitation to learn, grow, and be challenged. But like all invitations, the response is on you. There's a difference here between spoon feeding and force feeding, all right? I got four little kids. My oldest is four years old, which means we know a lot about spoon feeding and the temptation to force feed, all right? Spoon feeding is what happens with a young child where you plate a spoonful of food and you put the bite in front of their mouth. But that child has to open their mouth and take the bite. 
Now, there are many times when your little kids will not eat the spoonful of food and you just want to shove it in their mouth, okay? But that usually is not a great idea and I've, been, I've repented there, okay? But it's, you're putting the bite there, okay? And there's a season where you spoon feed your children, okay? But if you come to my house and my four-year-old, I'm still like, Caleb, come here, buddy. I'm still like spoon feeding my four-year-old. You should be like, dude, what's wrong with that kid? There's like something off with his maturity. There's something off with his growth. So if you've been following God or been a Christian for years and you can't prepare a meal for yourself and feed yourself spiritually, then like there's something wrong with your maturity. That's not like, well, we're trying to condemn you and make you feel guilty. We're just saying, hey, there's something wrong with your growth. Let's fix it. Learn how to feed yourself so that you can actually feed other people too. See, God is a good shepherd. He leads us to green pasture, but he doesn't shove our face in the ground and make us eat. You know what I'm saying? And so discipleship is not somebody else taking responsibility or you taking responsibility. So if you're discipling some people and you're feeling like, oh my gosh, all this burden to make sure they're fit. No, just release yourself. You are pushing them, challenging them, giving them opportunities and invitation. And if they don't want to eat it, then find somebody else that does. Okay, number three, discipleship is not a quick fix. It is not a quick fix for all your problems. It is a costly and timely commitment to align your life behind Jesus. And that decision, that commitment, is often a mundane daily choice. It's not glamorous. I want to be very honest with you guys. The work of the kingdom does not happen up on this stage on a Sunday morning with all the lights shining on you and everybody clapping for your great sermon. The work of the kingdom happens in coffee shops and in businesses and in back porches all over the city, in classrooms. Make disciples. Don't build stages and have everybody come listen to your latest, greatest sermon. I mean, this is part of our fellowship, and we gather together and we get encouraged, but the true work of the kingdom, if it's making disciples, is your job. It's your job. So quit waiting for the day when, when somebody's going to invite you up here to preach and feeling like that's when you're going to have arrived in your maturity in God. Stop. This is, it, this is just a, a one little platform where we gather together. The work of the kingdom is every single one of you, every single one of us, making disciples. And number four, discipleship is not easy. And it doesn't always feel good. Hey, I think that sounds like something Jesus said once, right? The road is broad and easy that leads to destruction, but the road is narrow and hard, difficult, that leads to life. It is not easy. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, we're actually called to train ourselves for godliness. Say that with me, church. Train ourselves for godliness. The word train here is where we get our word gymnasium. It's literally like, hey, if you want to physically build some muscle and get in shape, you need to go to the gym, and you need to be disciplined about going to the gym. We've all tried to go to the gym one time, hoping it would transform our life forever, and then we're just sore for two weeks, and we're like, man, should I do that again or not, you know? But bodily training takes two things, two things. Bodily training takes discipline and endurance. That means you go when you don't feel like going. If you want to grow, if you want to grow, 
You go when you don't feel like going, and you keep going when you feel like quitting. Discipline and endurance. Discipleship's not easy. It is training, but it will change the world. I've heard some people before say, oh, I don't, I don't want to do something out of discipline or duty. I just want to live in the overflow, you know, because I love Jesus so much. You know, maybe you've said that before. I don't want to be, you know, disciplined. I just want to, you know, live in this overflowing goodness of all my love for Jesus. That's great. But the problem is, is that it's not reality. Because reality doesn't say that we only do the right thing when we feel like it. That is not how character is formed. Character means that you do the right thing regardless of how you feel. So are you, the days that you wake up and you just, oh, I don't really feel like obeying God today or, you know, loving God today, you're just not going to do it, you know? Like married couples today, oh, I just don't really feel in love with my wife today. You're just going to, you know, check out and submit the divorce papers. This idea that our feelings are supposed to direct our actions is false. My will is supposed to direct my actions. That's why God gave it to us. Your will I submit to you that if you will let your will direct your actions, you will discipline your actions with your will, that your feelings will follow behind that. Your feelings will follow. Discipline anchors you in the shifting sand of your emotions and feelings. My four-year-old told me just the other day, literally Thursday morning, Daddy, I don't feel like going to school today. I was like, okay, buddy, I, I understand. I, I hear you. I, you, know, you can share your feelings with me. That's great. I said, buddy... Um, do you know what it's called when you don't feel like doing something, but you do it anyway because you want to honor God? He said, no, it's called being faithful. I said, do you know that there are days that daddy doesn't want to go to work, but I do it anyway because I want to honor God. It's what he's called me to do. And because I'm faithful. You know, there are days that mommy doesn't want to change diapers and cook 15 meals. <laughs> she does it anyway because she's faithful and she wants to honor God. Do you know that Jesus, you know, probably didn't really feel like dying on the cross, but he did anyway because he loved us and he was being faithful to God's calling in his life? Okay, buddy, so if Jesus could die on the cross, you think you could go to school today? I'm kidding. <laughs> a little heavy-handed there, Dad. Come on. Come on. Just setting him up. Knock him down. If you let your feelings lead your actions... I submit that you will be a very unstable and inconsistent person. Right. If you let your feelings lead your life and your actions, you will be a very unstable and inconsistent person. But if you let your will and your convictions lead your actions, I submit that you might just change your life and you might just change the world. Yeah. And endurance, discipline and endurance. Do you know that if you don't quit, when you start to feel weak, that that weakness actually turns into a building block of strength? I mean, this is how endurance works. Your last place of weakness actually becomes your new strength. Okay, any, any joggers in the room? And the Apostle Paul got this in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, literally, I beat my body and I make it my slave. Will over body, mind over matter. I make it my slave. And so it takes endurance to not quit and to keep going. 
as we get ready to close here, I think there's really just two main barriers for us when we're talking about discipleship. And it's really just the who and the how. The who and the how. how who am I supposed to disciple? Who's supposed to disciple me? And how do I actually do that? What does it look like? Well, th- this is, these are really simple questions, actually. If you're looking to be discipled, you don't need Tyler Hardy or Mitchell Welch or Bill Johnson or anybody else, your life group leader even, to disciple you. You just need to find somebody that's in your season of life that's living with a little bit more success and maturity than you are and ask them to invest in you. They could be a a lap ahead of you in the race or they could just be a couple of steps ahead of you in the race. But if they are ahead of you, they have something that you need. Okay? And I guarantee you, you might be thinking, oh, I could never disciple anybody. Do you know that I, I talked to a college girl in India this summer. She said her paradigm was blown about discipleship. She said, we, we would, a brand new believer just came to the Lord, and they do a, a, a Bible study with them on John chapter 1. The next day, that brand new believer would turn around and lead somebody else through a Bible study in John chapter 1. I'm like, come on, that is discipleship at, the fi- at its finest. Whatever you have, you can give away. And that needs to be us, church. And then how? Well, number one, you have to be close enough somebody to, to get dusty. You know, like be covered by the dust of your rabbi. Like you, there's got to be some like relationship, some like honesty, some vulnerability. You know, it's like not always this pretty thing. You got to be close. And then we've, we've actually created a resource um, for our church it's a 90-day discipleship plan. I did a little research. It takes, on average, 66 days to form a new habit. So we got you covered at 90 days. And all this thing does is it breaks down. If you go after church, go to the app store and literally just search for the discipleship app. That's what it's called. What's the name of that discipleship app? Oh, I think it's called the discipleship <laughs> app. Antioch Community Church, our buddies in Waco made it, okay? And they break down the core values of the kingdom of God, loving God, loving one another, living on mission. And all this is, we just created a way to take that app and put it into a 90-day plan. And you can walk this out with anybody. We're going to have piles of these things sitting up here after service. You want to come grab one? But we've just tried to create some tools, and the app is a great resource to help you toe the line of, of, like, encouraging someone without spoon-feeding them all the time. It just creates an opportunity for you to say, hey, this is what we're doing this week. All right, I'll talk to you in a week. No, I'm not going to text you every morning at 5.30 and ask if you woke up to spend time with God. No, I'm not going to text you encouragement verses every single day because it's your job if you want to eat this meal and follow Jesus. So you know what your meals are for the next week. I'll talk to you in a week. Now, I'm not, now that might be a little extreme. Okay, find a middle ground there, but... This is not hand-holding, okay? Jesus said, come. It's an invitation. All right, so why don't you stand, church band, come up as we wrap it up this morning. Uh, prayer leaders, will you guys go ahead and head down here as well? And Mitchell, if you wouldn't mind putting these discipleship plans up here. Awesome. As I was preparing this week and just trying to tune in with God's heart for our church and discipleship, he brought this verse to my mind that I know a lot of you are familiar with, but as iron sharpens iron, 
so one man or woman sharpens another, as iron sharpens iron. And I felt like the Lord was saying that we are better together than we are alone, and that we cannot be isolated from each other or for, from community and be the fullest and most alive and sharpest version of who God created you to be. You cannot be the sharpest version of who God created you to be and do it on your own and live in an isolated bubble and not let anybody into your life and never do discipleship. You can't be. What's this process that we're talking about? Iron sharpening iron. What are they making? They're making swords because God is bringing the kingdom of heaven to supplant the kingdom of darkness on the earth. And it is a battle and you are a weapon. And you cannot be the sharpest version in this battle that God's created you to be and not be rubbing up against other believers in this thing called discipleship. You can't. And we can't as a church afford to be dull versions of who God's made us to be. So I am challenging our entire church to return to discipleship as our primary calling from Jesus. It was his plan A. So if you call Antioch your church home, I'm officially inviting you to seek discipleship with someone further down the road and to initiate discipleship with somebody who you can help follow Jesus. Initiate and invite our whole church. What if our whole church was doing this? How many people could we touch and transform and change as iron sharpens iron? So as we respond this morning, if you feel like you've been isolated and you've just been trying to do this thing on your own, maybe you just need to come and say, man, I need somebody to disciple me. Will you pray for me that I find the right person? Or man, I've just been, God's taught me a lot and I haven't passed it on to anybody. And it's time for me to start investing what he's given to me. Will you pray for me that I'd know how to do that and, and find the courage? We'd love to pray for you this morning as we respond. Lord Jesus, we ask, I ask, Lord, that there would be a discipleship movement that happens from this church and this body and powerfully transforms and affects our individual lives and therefore affects this community that we live in and beyond. Jesus, would you do it in us? We invite you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.